Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason Snell. It's good to be back talking about space. Yes. it's. I look forward to Liftoff. I really enjoy recording it with you. And one thing I enjoy about it that is not tech. Like we do so much. We're talking about this earlier. We do so much tech. This is such a busy time of year for that. It's nice to sort of leave that aside, not talk about the iPhone 10, but talk about some other stuff. It's good. Little uh, little break. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, unfortunately, our break has to start with some sad news. Yeah, Cassini, as reported, as as promised, is gone. It uh, mm-hmm. its final messages were received. Um, it, uh, went into Saturn and, and burned up basically, um, lasted about half an hour, I think longer than they expected, which is nice. It was a little resilient yeah. little guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a, a great story that I read about how they did their operations briefing, um, that they do every week. They did one after the last one was like after it broke up and, uh, they, they, they always did, uh, like, uh, status updates on all the instruments. Right. So it was like, uh. How's your instrument? And everybody's like, uh, it, it's gone, or uh, it burned <laughs> up, or it's not its yeah. not providing any data. And uh, that was like their last mm. little going through the motions of, uh, of how they discuss Cassini for the last time. And uh, I saw some great pictures on Twitter of people, a lot of people went back to um, Jet Propulsion Lab, and uh, we're all like visiting with each other. Uh, for the loss of signal kind of event. So it was kind of like a reunion of the people who've spent 20 years working on Cassini or have worked on it over the years, over the last 20 years, and they all kind of got back together to to send it off into oblivion, which uh, is where it went, or, you know, Saturn oblivion. Yeah, it was nice. I, I watched a bunch of stuff. NASA had lots of videos. It was a really nice New York Times article that'll be in the show notes. Um, it You really get the sense watching all this and reading these interviews with people, like you said, a lot of these engineers and staff, this has been their entire career or a huge section of their career, right? You know, 10, 15, 20 years. And it it's understandable that you'd be emotional at the end of that. I know I would be. And um, it's just, um, it's it's sad to see the mission end, but I these stories are always kind of bittersweet, right? That you see the really the human side of all, of all yeah. this exploration and just the incredible number of human hours that go into something like this, kind of all, you know, coming together and then coming to an end, you know, when it's a little sad when the little uh, deep space network, you know, the, the little waves stop and, yep. you know, that's that. But it has to end. And, it uh, does. And, and so unless, unless you're even, even Voyager has to end eventually, but not mm-hmm. yet. Not yet, but that one's going into interstellar space. This one, they didn't want it to contaminate anything. So instead, into Saturn it goes. Oh, well. Into it Saturn. did a great job. Yeah. Well, we're going to switch emotional gears now <laughs> and go from something a little sad to something that I found genuinely funny. So yep. Sp- SpaceX published, I guess you would call it a blooper reel <laughs> of landing the Falcon 9 at sea. And we remember those videos um, it's not that long ago, but it's, they're they're so successful at it now. You kind of forget that they used to basically crash into the <laughs> into the ships and explode. And it's uh, a couple minutes of just footage of that happening. Of all the over failures, yeah. It's called mm-hmm. "How Not to Land an Orbital Rocket Booster," and it's got all the failures. It yeah. Has a happy ending, though. I will say, happy ending. It does. There, there is one. I'm trying to skim through and find it where it is 
aboard the ship, but there was some sort of like GPS lockout or something. So the thing is skittering across the deck of the ship and you're just like, please don't tip over the edge. Please don't tip over the edge. And it doesn't, but you see this massive thing just like, it's like if you put down a, a glass on a table, it's already wet and it sort of like skims across the top. Yep. It's very nerve wracking to see it bump up against the edge of this, of this drone ship. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a couple of minutes. You should go check it out if you haven't. And like I said, they did, uh, they did get it right and they've been, they've been real successful at it ever since. Yeah. But, uh, but there, there were some colossal, uh, fantastic <laughs> failures, and uh, it's. I, I think it, it shows a good sense of humor that they they did a greatest yeah. hits reel of their failures, um, in the context of that they they feel like they've got it down now. Yeah, the captions are are some of the best parts. There's one where it's sort of, um, it's it's already rapidly disassembling before it hits the ship, and and the caption is, well, technically it did land, just not in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's uh, it's pretty good. Speaking of SpaceX, Elon Musk is back at his Mars stuff. He's going to speak at another uh, astronomy event this time in Australia, um, and give an update. Remember, a year ago he talked about his plan for Mars. Well, he's going to do an update. There's speculation about what it's going to be. Um, Lauren Grush did a nice story on The Verge about it. That uh, sh- from his tweets, it seems like it's going to be a, uh, a suggestion of a smaller rocket than the one that he was using before, which would have more applicability across uh, you know other uses uh, instead of just sending people to Mars, which is good because it's like how do we how do we pay for this? How does SpaceX pay to do Mars development when there's potentially no money in it and they're just kind of like doing it because they want to do it? Um, and then she also suggested, which I think is a very smart suggestion, is uh, is that. Uh, the a lot of people in the uh, U.S. government are talking about the moon, and so this may be a thing where he kind of like his second take at Mars also includes access to the moon uh, because he might be able to get money from the U.S. to build some of this stuff because it could be used to um, land on the moon and build a moon base and stuff like that and not just uh, take people to Mars. And so uh, we'll hear more about that later this week as we record this uh, when he speaks in Australia. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of discussion after he unveiled this plan. You know, he <laughs> giant rocket launches, it hangs out in low Earth orbit, the booster lands again on the launch pad, puts a gas tank on its back, goes back, lots of moving parts, and very little in the way of, I remember in particular, life support systems. Uh, there was a comment that he didn't think the radiation was going to be as big of a concern as other people thought, which is quite the statement. Mm. And so hopefully they're going to put a little meat on those the, the bones of that plan. And like you said, I, I totally think there's going to be a moon element here as that seems to be more and more in the conversation with NASA and you know the new administrator and the, the administration on the whole and the U.S. government being more lunar focused than the Obama administration. I think that SpaceX, it, it would be silly for, for them not to have a vehicle that could could be used for that sort of mission and to have something that, hey, you know, we can do Moon or we can do Mars, just like they're doing with the SLS, just makes a ton of sense. And so I, I, I agree with you. I expect to see that language from him during this event of, hey, you know, we, we the red planet's still on our, on our roadmap, but we're not going to skip the Moon. We're going to be able to go there, too. 
And more, you know, more cynically, I look at this as being, you know, this whole thing is Musk trying to get out in front of the conversation about this stuff so that they are more actively um, in the discussion for money. Because in the end, they are funded by their customers in terms of uh, doing launches and things like that. And the U.S. government is a huge huge customer. There are also other governments, Lauren Grush points that, that out in her Verge story, there are a bunch of other uh, customers uh, and countries who want to do uh, have access to the moon. So their potential uh, competition for the U.S. government, but they're also potential um, customers for SpaceX. So there's a lot of, I think, I think this is a mixture of Elon Musk's bravado uh, and wanting to be a person who changes the world and also maybe a little bit of prospecting for business and talk, yeah. talking up Mars and the moon and even like talking up Mars so they can so moon sure we can do the moon we're talking about Mars we can get you to the moon no problem if you pay us and then they use the money to fund the uh, development that will also do the Mars stuff so I think I think he's uh you know, crazy like a fox, right? This is this is this is, <laughs> this is uh, he 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 definitely has got that at least partially in mind, and I'm sure there have been conversations behind the scenes with uh, people in the administration about what their goals are and how uh, SpaceX could build some stuff that they would want to fund. Yeah, I mean, you can see you can see a world where what goes on at low Earth orbit now, you know, lots of private companies, lots of governments doing lots of things. You can see that expanding out to the the moon, right? That if NASA's showing renewed interest there, we've talked about space mining a bunch in the past. Like, there's lots of opportunity there, and you're right. Private companies, other countries don't have those vehicles themselves, so that they have to go to somebody like Elon Musk for it. And you know, you said it's cynical, and I, and I see that, but I think it just makes sense from the business perspective that he's got to have his company yeah. ready when that day comes. Yeah, I just you know, I I, I want to. With doing this show, as long as we've got, I, I always like try to keep in mind the follow the money aspect of it because it's it's mm-hmm. not just about exploration, right? It is also about who gets the money to do the exploration that they want to do or to fund the project that they want to have, and that's the political aspect of it. And and uh, and Elon Musk knows that as much as anybody. Yep. Another like little placeholder for next time probably is that the um, gravitational wave observatories that we've mentioned on previous shows that use gravity to detect things like the merging of black holes across the universe uh, from us, there is more they're they're doing an announcement later this week. Uh, we don't know what's in it, but they they finished measuring their their latest observe, observation run ended August 25th, and they've got a uh, a press conference scheduled for I think tomorrow as we record this. So um, people should keep an eye out for that because there may be some new gravitational wave news on the horizon, um, and we'll obviously report back about that in two weeks when we uh, when we're back for our next episode. As we're recording this, Puerto Rico is reeling from the effects of Hurricane Maria. It's um, it's a pretty dire situation. There is a radio telescope there, Arecibo, which if you listen to our member episode, it's featured heavily in contact. Yeah. Um, uh, it's been there for a long time. It is a, a radio telescope. It was the first to discover exoplanets. It was the first to image an asteroid. Lots of firsts done by this radio telescope and the teams working there. And it saw some damage in the storm, got a feed line to one of the radios basically fell and hit one of the panels. So the dish of this telescope is made of 38,000 aluminum panels, and they all have to be perfectly aligned and smooth, and, and everything's got to be destroyed because that's how the telescope works. And 
about 20 of those have been damaged. Of course, there's no, there's no power on the island. There's, I mean, there's, it's really a pretty bad situation. But the conversation has come up of what's going to happen to this telescope, right? Yeah, that the I mean, the, all of Puerto Rico is in uh, having a difficult time right now. I mean, they, the power is out to the whole island, and uh, and uh, just to, to point out because I think people don't realize that the, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's not a state, but it's part of the U.S. Everybody there is an American citizen. This is like. Houston and Florida. This is another example of uh, of a part of America being hurt by a hurricane. And I hope that they get the help that they need. And if you are yes. thinking of donating to uh, to relief efforts, please do, because Puerto Rico deserves it um, as much as other parts of the U.S. deserve it. They need the help. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see that these are all places that have connections to uh, space and science that have been hit mm-hmm. in terms of Houston and, and of course, so much space stuff in Florida and Arecibo in Puerto Rico. There, there had been conversations leading up to this by the National Science Foundation concerned about the age of the telescope. And my guess is that, and this is like low on the totem pole of things to deal with in Puerto Rico, but at some point that conversation is going to come back up. And it, it may be that they decide you know, the repairs are going to be really expensive and we were already kind of on the fence about how to support this aging hardware, and this this could be the end of the radio telescope. But but yeah, the 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 alignment of of these three disasters and what we cover on the show has been really uncanny. And as soon as um, you know the news was out that Puerto Rico was was in the the line of the storm, I think both of us thought about this telescope probably because we just saw contacts. So it was it was on our mind. But um, so we're we're keep an eye on that and see. Like I said, I don't think it'll be any decisions we made anytime real soon, but it is something to to keep an eye on, I think. Yep, for sure. It's a 50-year-old telescope. So, yeah, it may, this may be, uh, they may get it back up and running or they may decide that it's it's uh, reached the end of its useful life. Who knows? We'll watch it. So I think that, uh, I think that does it for our um, pre-flight checklist. We're going to get back into Project Mercury, but first we want to talk a little bit about a rapid Mars sample return mission. So a sample return from Mars has been kicked around for a while. If you poke around NASA's website and JPL and, and European Space Agency, people have been talking about this for a while. We send something to Mars, scoop up some rocks, and it launches and comes back. Uh, we've, we talked about this in the spacecraft draft. Uh, we have OSIRIS-REx right now that's doing this as well, going to an asteroid, scooping up some stuff, coming back. But it's kind of in the news again because there there has been some some talk from the NASA Associate Administrator for Science about doing this in what he's calling a rapid architecture. So something that would be very lean, you launch to Mars, you land, you have a little rover that goes out, scoops up some rocks, and basically you bring them right back. No science being done on the ground on Mars. It's just get the material and bring it back as quickly as possible and, and, and do all the science here, basically, which is a, a big difference, right? You look at the rovers that we have now, Curiosity, it, it is doing science on the ground yeah, exactly. and sort of relaying information back to us. And this would be a reversal of that. It's a cool idea, right? I mean, we have better equipment here on Earth, but you got to get it back here. That's the yeah. that's a lot of work. We there So few samples have been returned from space. We talked about this a, a, a few months ago that the list of space samples returned to Earth, you know, a, accumulated from somewhere out in the solar system and then brought back to Earth to investigate is 
it's a it's a handful. You can count it on one hand how many times that we've done something like that. So it's super hard to do. So this would be cool to get it straight from the surface of Mars. Yeah, and the fastest they're talking about would be like a like um, the return trip would be nine months because you've got a you've got these launch windows uh, where we are lined up with Mars. Even that though, I think some of the feedback against this plan is that yes, we have better science here, but with those nine months. Like how how would that time impact the scientific discoveries waiting in the soil? It is the act of moving it and transporting it, of it sitting there for nine months waiting to come home to us. Does that change what we could discover in it? And I don't think anyone really knows. I think it's just it's just a point that's being brought up of you know that's the trade off. Right, we can go and do it on Mars, but we have very limited tools, and you know. Curiosity is having problems with the drill, the drill, and other stuff going on right now. Or do we scoop it up and bring it back? And do you risk that time elapsed, you know, affecting the discoveries? Um, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't think anyone does, but it's an interesting counterpoint to this idea of a, of a rapid uh, sample return. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's it's a fun idea. It would be great to get uh, some Mars bits back here. So I hope they figure it out. Yeah, and we get to see that. I think so too. I think they will. It seems to be a big push for this. So I think I think the rapid Mars sample return mission is is not going to uh, disappear. I think this may be one that sticks around. So this week we are continuing our series on NASA's crewed space programs. We are finally rounding out Project Mercury. Taken. <laughs> this is going to be a much longer uh, <laughs> series than I thought it was when we started. Um, so you had the last two Mercury missions today. That's right. This is a. Uh... This is part seven in our seven-part series about Project <laughs> Seven. Uh, yeah, lots of sevens. Uh, we have Sigma Seven and Faith Seven. Those are our missions for this time to wrap up Project Mercury. Yeah, so Sigma Seven took Wally Shara through six orbits over the course of nine hours. This, the main objective here was take a long flight. <laughs> so the ones we'd seen before this, we've covered the last couple of weeks. Very quick, just a few hours, if that. The, the early one's just a few minutes. But they want to bump that up to nine hours. It would be the longest American space flight by a healthy margin. NASA is still trailing the Russians at this point. I think they have hit the 24-hour mark by now. But we're working towards it. Uh, it was taken, A takeoff was October 3rd, 1962, on a modified Atlas rocket. The, the rocket actually burned 10 seconds too long. So the Sigma-7 capsule is actually in higher orbit than intended. If you burn too long, you go further. He was able, the pilot was able to correct that um, using as little fuel as possible. Remember, this came on the, came right after the mission we spoke about last week where way too much fuel was used. The landing zone was missed by hundreds of miles. I think there was a real, a real push for Sigma-7 to be as exact and to be as light on fuel as possible. And even this this course correction was done so with those parameters in mind. Uh, so Wally Shara did not have nice things to say about the capsule. Mm-mm. He said the manual controls, which re- remember, they, they like insisted that there be manual controls. They weren't going to even do that. So they, they, all right, we'll give you manual controls. But he didn't like them. He said they were slow and sloppy. So he ended up reusing the automatic system for several orbits instead of dealing with the controls. It's like, I, I imagine that being like, look, I, I forget it. Just, <laughs> I'm just going to sit here for a while. Just, yeah. Um, and that, that was learning a lesson about what the issues were with the, with the controls. Um, 
on the third orbit, he turned off the gyroscopes on the spacecraft <laughs> and part of the electrical power system and just let the capsule drift. All right. He said uh, he used this time to focus on his spatial awareness, which he found unaffected by the lack of gravity. So this is like, how do we, how, how would we feel in, in, in space? Do we still, you know, is up still up? Is down still down? It's like, yeah, it is. It's uh, whatever it is, you know, his orientation in the capsule and in space, he, he felt like he was unaffected by it. Um, on the fourth orbit, he approached California and spoke to John Glenn in a downlink uh, conversation was about two minutes long and was broadcast live on radio and television across the U.S. And then the rest of the orbits just were, uh, you know, they're fine. They're pretty, uh, pretty standard. He's, uh, he's, he, nothing bad happened with him spending the extra time in orbit. It was all good. Mm-hmm. They had a little space podcast. That's how I like to think about that two minute broadcast. Yeah. That's the first space, space podcast. Well, yeah. well I'll said. give it to him. I'll give it to him. I think, I think we are empowered by podcasting to give that award, to give that honor to them. Like you said, very uneventful mission. Splashdown was right on target. The capsule with the astronaut still inside was hauled aboard an aircraft carrier. And once aboard, he blew the explosive hatch. So we talked about that with Gus Grisham's landing. Uh, it was only 15 months earlier. Like this, The Mercury missions were very close together. We're talking like a year and a half end to end. He blew that explosive hatch that just plagued his landing. He got bruising on his hand. Again, this is what would have happened if Gus had hit that right. button. Gus didn't have any of that. And Shira thought, you know, did it as a way to clear his friend's name. And and I think that, you know, at this point, the investigation wrapped up. I think this helped solidify in a lot of people's minds that whatever happened on Grissom's capsule was, was not an astronaut's mistake. It was something with the hardware. But um, I think I think out of out of. Sigma seven, that's the most remarkable thing. Like that's the thing I think his flights remembered for that when he was on board, he hit that button on purpose to prove that Gus did not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, evidence that, uh, what people always said about, uh, Gus Grissom's thing, you know, this is the evidence that it, it's unlikely that he actually hit the switch because mm-hmm. we would have seen it. All right. Uh, one more, one more round. You up for it? Let's, let's yes, close let's, this off. Let's, let's bring it home. Seven final flight of Project Mercury, May fifteenth, nineteen sixty three, and talk about duration. Um, they've been ramping up the duration, and here we got a Gordon Cooper, thirty four hours in orbit, twenty two orbits. So really maxing out the time and space for the Mercury mm-hmm. capsule. You know, still, you know, uh, a little more than a day. Not 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 a huge amount, but at the time, this was extremely long duration. Um, there's uh, some issues with being in orbit that long, which is uh, you got to go to the bathroom eventually, right? Yeah, Alan Shepard <laughs> apparently like left behind a toilet plunger as a joke. <laughs> uh, and but uh, Gordon Cooper had a urine collection system instead of just like pee in your suit, and we hope it doesn't shorten anything out. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the plunger, it said "remove before launch," and they didn't. They, he didn't actually take it because there's no toilet in space. It's, uh, the, his suit was the toilet, basically. Yeah, I like that practical joke though. That's pretty good. Yeah, this this mission really was pushing Mercury and the capsule and the program to its limits. You know, 34 hours is, is a long time compared to those first suborbital flights, and in basically the same hardware. Cooper had several experiments to carry out on his mission. He jettisoned a flashing beacon into space to see how easily it would be to spot in orbit. You know, we talked about this trying to 
to s- understand the visibility in space, super important because in Apollo, you would need to swing around and pick up your, your service module. This was successful. He noted that he, he, saw, he saw the beacon for several orbits uh, without any problem. He took several photos in his orbits that are considered to be the best of the Mercury program. If you sort of Google image search or look on you know public websites for photos taken by Mercury astronauts, chances are you will see Gordon Cooper's. A, he had way more time on his hands to do this. He, he had um, a break of six hours where he kind of slept on and off and, and took uh, <laughs> most of these photos. Plenty of time to, to look out the window and take pictures. And lots of orbits. If you went over a place and it was cloudy, maybe it wouldn't be 12 hours later. Um, he sent back the first televised pictures from orbit, so the first YouTube channel from orbit. We'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, and a rather creepy looking selfie taken with a slow scan television camera. It's on the Wikipedia page for this, this mission. It is, um, it's not what you think. It's not like uh, what we see now. This is very low res. Slow scan TV cameras were very low tech, but the first televised picture from orbit, um, faith seven holds that honor. Like we talked about, this was a big push, right? This was a lot more time and space problems did begin to, to sort of creep in later in the flight, on the 20th orbit, Cooper lost all altitude readings. The next lap around, his automatic stabilization and control system started to fail. Carbon dioxide levels started climbing. He sort of had to even out the, the coolant in his suit and the carbon dioxide level in the cabin to keep everything uh, sort, of, sort of equalized. And because of this, because of these failures, many of the re-entry steps, they would have been automated he would have to do he'd have to do manually because altitude control stabilization these systems that that should have been there for the for the ground to tell the capsule what to do just weren't responding yeah um this is uh a, a moment where you ha- are, this is why they recruit test pilots right mm-hmm. <laughs> so yep. gordon cooper cool under pressure uh, he draws some lines, I think like a grease pencil or something, right? He draws lines on the window to stay aligned with the constellations. He uses his wristwatch to time the reentry burn. And it will all worked out. The, the capsule comes down four miles from its target. It's actually the closest that any capsule had come. So maybe the answer is have a guy with a grease pencil <laughs> and a wristwatch yeah. figuring it out because they were um without the automated controls it was actually a closer landing to target um it's pretty pretty incredible yeah. and this ended the mercury program there's talk of one more mercury flight uh having alan shepherd up there for 48 hours but it was never undertaken i wonder what the uh the bathroom accessory would have been <laughs> that would have been set for him then um, we basically like, despite the rocky start that happened at the beginning of this program, it ended up being a huge success. It got Americans into orbit, uh, still behind the Russians, but, uh, they were in orbit safely and reliably. And that meant that they could move on to the next phase, which was to have more than one person in the capsule and have them up there for longer. And that is the next phase in our recap of, uh, these American crewed space missions, which is project Gemini, which is, uh, which is next for us. Um, Gordon Cooper was a Gemini astronaut, so we'll see him again. He didn't end mm-hmm. up uh, flying beyond Gemini, but he did. He was a backup for um, for some Apollo missions, but uh, his uh, his next flight will be his last one, which is Gemini. And we'll get there. The twins. Yeah, I, the twins, because there's two guys in the capsule, mm-hmm. you see. Twins. Still a tiny capsule, still cram, crammed in there. Yeah, but now there's two guys. We've crammed two guys in the can. Mm. Yeah. I think the the thing that I've, I've been impressed with so much 
learning much more about Mercury th- through, you know, putting these notes together, it is how quickly everything moved, right? That they found some missiles and bolted a capsule to the top of it because that's what they had. Capsule was very simple. It was actually more complex than it was going to be because, like you said, these guys were test pilots and they went to fly them. And the time from that first suborbital flight to the end of it is very rapid and gains were made very quickly, still trailing uh, the Soviet Union, but but catching up and, and doing it in a way where there was there was missions had issues, but there was no real failure. Um, no one was killed during the Mercury uh, missions. It, it's just the amount of work that got done and the speed at which they got it done is really impressive to me. And it's something that I, I wasn't super familiar with getting into this, but it's definitely the thing that is going to resonate with me after this is just how, how efficient Mercury was at, we have these goals. We got to do suborbital. We got to get into orbit and we got to see how far we can go in orbit. And they just checked all the boxes off right in a row and moved on. Yep. On to the next one. That's right. I think that does it for this week, Jason. I think so. I think, uh, you know, we have no more Mercury missions to talk about. So it seems like a good place to end. Yeah. If you want to find show notes for this week, you can do so on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 56. You can get in touch with us uh, via email there, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast. Jason is at J Snell. That's J S N E double L. You can find me on Twitter's I S M H. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.